You're listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. This is the podcast where we interview high-performing individuals who have been through adversity, but who have come back stronger. My hope is that by sharing and exploring these stories, we can help those who have been through adversity and inspire them to do great things. Today, I'm welcoming David Smith, MBE, to the podcast. I first heard David speak at a conference a few years ago, and I found his story incredibly powerful. David is a Paralympic gold medalist, double world champion, a highly accomplished Nike-sponsored athlete, as well as being a writer, speaker and coach. David started his sporting life representing Great Britain in karate and bobsleigh, overcoming the fact that he was born with club feet. He then took up rowing, making the British Paralympic team. But in 2010, he was diagnosed with a rare tumour growing in his spinal cord in his neck. He had the tumour surgically removed and built back from scratch, literally teaching himself how to walk again. Remarkably, less than two years later, he won a gold medal in the London 2012's Paralympics in the mixed Cox Four. Following London 2012, he switched sports and joined the British paracycling team with aspirations to go to Rio Paralympics 2016. Sadly, he never made it there. Because a few months prior to competition, he was told that his tumour had returned. Six years on from that, and he has now had in total six surgeries to remove the tumour, with each further surgery bringing new, life-changing challenges. Following his most recent surgery, in 2017, he became paralysed down one side of his body, and now lives his life with a spinal cord injury. Despite this, David continues to defy the odds and is still passionate about sports, choosing to spend his time often cycling up crazy high mountains. I am continuously inspired by David's story, and I'm sure after listening to this, you will be too. Hello, David. Good evening, Emma. Good evening, Good. and uh, you know, thank you for having me on. It's, it's, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've given a really brief synopsis of your tumultuous journey. And if it's okay, I'm going to pick out a few key moments for us to discuss. So if we can kick off by kind of going back to the early 2010s, can you tell us how do you remember feeling after your initial diagnosis? Did you have an understanding of the life changing enormity of what was to come? So I I think to answer this probably fairly I would almost go back to to childhood and you know there's no there's no lessons in school on emotional intelligence on life skills on psychology on mindset it's very much around IQ rather than EQ and you know we're not taught how to as Angela Duckworth would say to to the example what grit is and grit is you know the 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 mix of perseverance and passion and it's a great uh, measure of success in life and I guess many people are maybe naturally gritty and others are not. And mm. when I was first sat in front of a, a doctor, it, it, I'd gone through a 10, 15 years of medical problems. I'd constantly been visiting doctors with pain, with fatigue, and I was always met with the, well, you're, you're doing too much sport, you're doing too much training, you're doing too much of this. You've, then I was told I had chronic fatigue syndrome. And then I was researching what chronic fatigue syndrome was. And then I obviously, my inner narrative at this point, then started to believe that I had chronic fatigue syndrome. So then Mm -hmm. I was like, 
I'm David Smith. I have I am basically chronic fatigue syndrome. So I started to believe this is what I had. And of course, then that manifests all sorts of other things that are going on. So when I actually sat down for the very first time and the neurologist in Windsor held a scan up to the screen and said, look, this is a tumor. There was a almost a moment of relief because I was like, okay, wow, this explains so much. And at that point, I guess my level of understanding of neurobiology, neuroscience was, was very limited. I actually, it was non-existent. I knew how to build strength and endurance from a physiological athletic point. I didn't really know much about psychology as in what's really going on between the years. And a lot of it was just run on a subconscious program that I'd learned in sport for so many years. Yeah. So when I was first diagnosed, there was this instant question of, well, could, this explains why so many things have been going wrong in my in my life for, for all of my life, really. Uh, from an early age, I was diagnosed, misdiagnosed with epilepsy. I'd spent 10 years of my childhood on Tegretol medication. Wow. And then I had the chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis and all these were actually, they were the tumor pressing on the nerves in the spinal cord. So were you so upset that, that, were you kind of angry, upset that I had been missed for so many years? I, you know what? I didn't really, it was like, an, I was numb. There was like a numb feeling of like, well, this can't really be me. I don't, I don't look sick. I don't feel ill. Yeah. And then there was the thought of, well, this is, this kind of explains the lot, the, you know, the, the lack of bowel bladder control, the, the loss of sexual function, all of these things that had been going on for almost 20 years. Well, at that point, yeah, 10, 15 years, they were like, okay, there's an answer to this. And I think mm-hmm. as human beings, when we can understand the why and the what behind something, then we can kind of accept it a little bit better. Yeah. So at that point I was like, okay, I, I can understand having a tumor in that part of the body is, is a pretty extreme place to have it. The spinal cord pretty much controls the communication between the brain and the body. And mm-hmm. if that's interrupted, then things are not going to work. When I stepped out of that uh, hospital, I drove to Bisham Abbey and I went straight from a hospital into a high performance environment. Yeah. And in that environment, it was all about winning. Mm-hmm. And in the other environment it was all about just trying to live. And then I, what I didn't know at that time is I'd spend the next 12 years of my life bouncing from high performance sport environment where everyone is just wants to win. Mm-hmm. And then in another environment where everyone is fighting to live and that really what a contrast. Say, yeah, that's probably caused a lot of psychological mm. trauma. Uh, I've learned a lot from it, but it's also traumatized me massively on on what my philosophy is and why I'm here, what's the meaning of life, all these deep, deep yeah. questions that, yeah. that, that it's provoked me to go on to. So that, that initial day in 2012, I think, was met with a real numbness and that sort of what can't really be happening. But if we look at Kruber off stages of grief, the first one is denial. And I think yeah. that might, it was such a big trauma to hear those words that that you go straight into denial mode. And I, what my coping mechanisms were sport. Yeah. I got in the character of stroke to Bisham Abbey. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to address it. I thought if I bury my head in the sand, it's going to go away. And Yeah. Did you, te- did you tell your team straight away or you didn't even tell anyone? Yeah, I, I, I went straight and told the, 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 the doctor who mm-hmm. uh, Richard Budget at the time, who was yeah. a British Rowan doctor. And, you know, he had organized the scans. So I, I went back and then 
I, I actually think you know what i think he possibly already knew because i think right. the, the the scans were done through the english institute of sport so i think mm-hmm. he probably already yeah. knew but he wasn't yeah. in a position to tell me so uh yeah they and then they had a plan and mm-hmm. i guess as an athlete i just followed the plan i followed yeah. it step by step yeah and that was really i guess opening a door that i've kind of walked into a room and been stuck in that room ever since yeah i mean you've talked about grit um following that initial diagnosis you were you were not long out of the london 2012 olympics um did you ever have any doubt that you would make it back in a boat to compete or did you always believe that you would get there following your surgery you know i think at that point i there was never a moment where i didn't there was never a moment of doubt where i thought i'm not going to make it back and i I don't i think a lot of that was just complete ignorance to what had actually happened to me i didn't realize the severity of it i I had the initial surgery which was five hours i woke up i spent seven days in hospital i was sent home i was probably sent home too early and and i had a spinal stroke at home and then i almost died at home and i was rushed back into hospital and i went through another emergency surgery to decompress my spinal cord and, and that blood clot was sitting very very high up in my neck if it had moved a few millimeters higher into the brain stem then I, then I wouldn't be speaking to you today so i was probably within i was very lucky to to survive the blood clot i think the blood i think the blood clot and the spinal stroke was potentially more dangerous than than the tumor and so when i woke up from that at this point i'd gone from a 100 kilo roar to now 69 kilos in a bed wow yeah. And that was a huge drop. And at that point, I was just like, well, the games are... I wasn't even focused on the games at that point. There was a World Championships five months down the line. I thought I was going to get to those World Championships. Amazing. Uh, so much was, I guess, my my self-belief. Mm. And everyone around you is telling you, you can't do it. You're met very much where you can't do this, you can't do that. And I, I think there was a part of me that was like, well, I'll, I'll prove you wrong. <laughs> And, uh, I, you know, and I think that probably goes back to, to childhood stuff. And, mm. you know, and, and I just, I, I committed every single hour, every single minute of every single day to get to that start line. And yeah. within six months, I was back in a boat. Three months, I was on a, an ergo at Caversham. Mm-hmm. I had to fight to get back into the boat and get into the start line in London. It wasn't a straight line. Yeah, it never, never is. I always say never that. Is, is, yeah, you know, never a straight it, line. It was... It was something I thought I could never go through again. And I always said that to myself in rehab. I was thinking, you know what, this is this is super intense. There's no way in, I could ever do this again. Yeah. But I've got enough mental fortitude to get through this once. Yeah. And, and at the end of it, the reward is the highest accolade in sport. So there was all there was a there was a good driver to to get there. Yeah. And and it was a home games as well. So the, the all the motivate if you can't get motivated for that, then mm. and the emotion the, the, as you cross the line. Can you remember that emotion as you cross the line in London? Yeah, I was like, thank God this is over. <laughs> it was just, it was such, you know there was so much pressure in, with with the sport. And I know pressure is a privilege, uh, but I think for me it had been such a traumatic experience to go from the hospital bed from the spinal stroke through all the rehabilitation mm-hmm. and you know you you'll know very well what it's like that when you first go home from that surgery it, it's it's just you know it's hard to explain to someone who's maybe not been through it yeah uh, but when you first go home and you you sleep in your bed that first night and you wake up the first morning 
and you hear birds and you feel the air and it's the first time you've heard a bird make a noise in in a, over a month you've not breathed fresh air in over a month you've just heard people screaming in pain every night people dying next to you yeah. all of this stuff and then you wake up that first morning and you're kind of like wow i made it mm. but there's this outer body experience yeah that that i think i don't think you can explain to someone who's not had that yeah and i think only people who have had it will understand what that 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 moment feels like yeah absolutely so to cross london there was it just it felt like everything had just happened so fast mm. and i was like wow okay i'm just you know i'm gonna get out of this boat and go go collect my medal and then i'm gonna go home and go skiing and just forget <laughs> that this whole chapter of my life even happened mm. because it was just so i just wanted to move on from it yeah I, yeah I didn't want to i didn't want to live off the medal i didn't want to be a you know go from athlete to celebrity shows and all that so i didn't want to do any of that i just wanted to go home to my village mm -hmm. and ski with my mates <laughs> and that and that's what you know that's kind of what i did that's what you did um, I've heard you talk about a book, um, which I also found pivotal in my mental recovery, which was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Can you explain to our listeners what aspects of that book particularly spoke to you? So that, that book was given to me in 2016. I, I'd gone through another surgery in 2014, 2016. I'd, 2015, I'd been diagnosed again. In 2016, I'd, I walked in, went through an INR surgery and there was mistakes made in that surgery that ultimately paralyzed me from the neck down wow. and left me lying. And, and it was that time someone said, look, if, have you ever read this book? And I was like, no. And it was probably at that point, I guess my curiosity had sparked around psychology. I couldn't really use my body anymore. Yeah. I knew, I knew the tools that I'd used in the previous three surgeries were not going to work this time around. This was a, different fight a different animal so i was like okay I, I need to come at this from a different direction and somebody uh gave me that book and I, and I read it and i think it's probably one of the most profound books i've ever read yeah. and i think for me there was there were several things that, that stood out i think the what victor frankl speaks about stimulus space response was huge mm -hmm. that's something that i've worked on ever since that moment to have the to sit in that space and actually then respond in a way that's aligned with my values. So definitely the, the one thing, the main thing I took from it was the, the stimulus space response and especially in rugged environments where the outcome is potential death and how important to be able to regulate your states is and ultimately also and I guess it's from where, where he got it from Nietzsche was about if we know our why, we can withstand anyhow. Yeah. And I guess that catapulted me on then into a rabbit hole of philosophy and going mm -hmm. to look at what stoicism is and all the great minds of the world. And yeah. I think for me, I was probably somehow trying to search for some form of meaning in all of my suffering. Mm. And, and I'm thinking, well, and you know, if we can have vicarious experiences through someone else it gives us hope and i think that so many people when they read that book they maybe lean on victor frankwell and think well if he suffered to that extent mm -hmm. but yet came out yeah. and contributed to the world in such a prolific way then i can do the same and it taught me that it's not all about the self 
sport can be very selfish mm-hmm. it's you know the athlete wants to win the medal for themselves yeah. uh, you know you hear people saying oh, i did it for all these other people but ultimately it's kind of for yourself yeah. i want my medal for myself <laughs> um okay it's great that you, you inspire people and everything but ultimately you go on that journey mm-hmm. for yourself but when i read victor's book i was thinking well actually you know if you can do so much other things for humanity as a whole mm-hmm. then that can bring you just your why strengthens so much more. And I didn't realize by reading, and I, I go back to that book so many times, yeah. even now, just to to kind of learn, I think learning from people who have got such incredible minds, they've explored their mind in such a, a depth. There, there's so much to learn there. Yeah, and absolutely. I try to sit down with wise people every morning. And most of these wise people, or via podcasts and yeah. YouTube videos, but just to listen to them and think, okay, what can I take from that, that that may help me, which then I can help someone else. Yeah. I also go back to that book quite frequently. And actually my mantra is what is my why? And I kind of mm. like to make sure that I'm always aligned with that. How yeah. did you kind of work out what your why was? Yeah. So I think, you know, in many ways, it probably took to surgery number six to really get that, uh, to really sit. And this is something that I don't think can happen overnight. I think knowing your why is, it's you know, Pete Carroll from the Seattle Seahawks talks about this and their philosophy, along with Dr. Michael Gervais there, was about developing humans, not athletes. Mm-hmm. They developed good humans they didn't want to win they, they wanted to win but their philosophy wasn't just about winning it was about being at their best yeah in his and they speak a lot about knowing your personal philosophy and then that leads to your why and your purpose so i started to work on what my personal philosophy was and then i guess through all through my life it's changed at one point it was all about winning and that worked from 2010 to 2012 but i realized from 2016 onwards that's not going to work anymore so i need to change that so after reading Viktor Frankl's book and reading The Power of Now Becker Tolle and books, you know, along the sort of the, the similar sort of line, like The Alchemist, I started to realize actually being present mm-hmm. is so important. Yeah. Being in the moment, that's really where life happens and where magic happens. And, you know, we come into this life on an inhale and we we leave on an exhale to two of the most important breaths we'll, we'll ever take but it doesn't mean every breath in between them is not as important, mm-hmm. but we're, we're not very aware of them. Yeah. So my philosophy was very much about being where my feet are yeah, all the time, telling myself and remind myself they would be present, be in the moment. As humans, we're, we live in the past and we live in the future yeah. constantly. Well, you know, things will be better when I get, to hear or when i win the next medal i'm going to be happy or they're looking back see it's very hard to just live in the moment and Mm -hmm. with all the technology that's around us now we get this instant gratification so it poses and you know we can spend so much time looking at other people's lives it's it's such a dangerous trap to fall into Mm -hmm. so i was just like okay my my philosophy is literally just to be where my feet are so my why is is to get up every day and and live it like it's my last yeah and yeah, and you know, and with that, there's a purpose that's built into that. That I feel like my purpose is to share the lessons I've learned, not so much from sport, but from going through the hospital situation to other people to help them how best they can live in the present moment 
because I feel that if humans lived more in the present moment with compassion, Mm. curiosity, that society would just be such a better place to live in. Yeah, because in society, we, we, you know, we're kind of brought up, aren't we, to try and achieve goals all the time. And you're always looking forward to that next goal. But do we enjoy the process enough? Like like you yeah. said, you know, do we enjoy the I think if you, if you ask any athlete after they've won a medal, the mm. fir- one of the first questions they get asked is what's next? Yeah. What's next? Yeah. Well, why can't I just enjoy this moment? Yeah. It's always what's next. Even think of how the, the model of British sport works. It's, it, the Olympic flame has not even gone out yeah. and we're preparing for the next Olympics. Yeah. And oh. I understand we have yeah. to do that because mm. that's that's, that, that's what we do. But also it's really important that we pause yeah. and, and be like in the moment because as Marcus Aurelius and all the great Stoics said, that, you know, one, once we die, mm. the people who cared about us winning those medals they will also die and in a few generations from now none of us will be remembered yeah and that's a pretty like when you start to look at memento mori and your own mortality and you realize in a couple of generations from now no one will even know who we were they won't know us you know even the greatest athletes right now Mm -hmm. potentially not many people transcend time Mm. well people might remember you (laughs) Yeah, I spoke to a young athlete the other day and I said to him, you know, I spoke about Alan Wells. He didn't even know who Alan Wells was. Yeah. 21-year-old athlete. He's like, who's that? And I was like, wow. And that really made me think. I was like, okay, if the last, you know, he was the last white man, we call it what it is, to win the 100 meters. Mm. And the athlete who's 20-year-old now didn't know who he was. Yeah. Yeah. He's not transcending time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very there's very, very few people do. So I think it's so important. Okay, we need to set these goals and we need to always strive, but it's also very important to to try and live in the present moment and, and be where your feet are. Yeah, absolutely. Um your your tumor has unfortunately come back a few times. Um mm-hmm. as someone, you know, who's been through cancer, I know that one of the hardest things I deal with is that fear of recurrence. So I wanted to ask you, how how do you deal with that fear of it coming back? I th- I think first of all is that that it is acknowledging it. It is there, and and I I read a, a great book by Susan David who wrote a book called Emotional Agility, and she talked about not suppressing the emotion. She's a big fan of Viktor Frankl as well, you know, and mm. she uses the analogy of don't don't think of the pink elephant in it. You know, you can't not think of it. And I yeah. think you, if you tell someone not to think of something for the next minute, they think of it on average 40 times, I think the, the data showed. Wow. So if you think of, if I say, oh, don't don't think about a reoccurrence, mm-hmm. then that's pretty much going to be on your mind. And then yeah. you, we know from science, the more you think of something, the more you strengthen that neural pathway. So then it becomes this daily narrative. So what I try to do is, again, I try to be present. I try to be in the present moment. I try to get into flow states. Yeah. So I've worked out what are my flow triggers. Mm-hmm. And I find that the more I'm engaging in clear goals, things with meaning and purpose, that align with my values, the busier I am, the more focused I can be, I don't really ever give thoughts to it. It doesn't It doesn't come into my, into my mind because I'm just busy living. Yeah. But I've also done a lot, a lot of therapy. I've sat on many, many couches and probably done over 500 hours of therapy mm. to get to that point. I don't think you can just press a button and, and, and arrive there. You, ha- you have to do the work. 
And the reward of doing that work is being able to then reframe it, take take your attention away from it mm-hmm. and, and focus on other things. And uh, one, one of the great helps for me was I, I did some work with Steve Peters and he said to me before my scans, he's like, don't build what if bridges. Yeah. Because you build this what if bridge, then you get your scan, you're clear, and then you but you've spent so much yeah. energy and time, yeah. which time is the most precious thing we have, mm-hmm. building a what if bridge, and then you get there, and yeah, and if it is a positive scan, then you deal with it when you're there, yeah, and it goes back again to what this you know the great philosophers talk about about living in the present moment, not mm-hmm. the past, not the future, and I, you know that's easier said than done, yeah. and I would you know, anyone who's listened to this and this is the first time they're exploring this sort of conversation, it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and be able to just think in the present moment. It doesn't really work like that. You have to do the work. And and I think as someone who's had one tumor, there is always a worry there. And, and I, and I think that, you know, allow journal journaling's great. I did a lot of journaling, Mm -hmm. allowing moments where it's okay to 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 be vulnerable. It's okay to sit with those thoughts, self-awareness, doing the mindfulness work and being like, well, okay, there is a chance that this could could reoccur, reoccur. But there's also a chance that someone who's never been diagnosed will also get diagnosed. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a lot of CBT type language, yeah. you know, show me the evidence. Where's the evidence that I is going to reoccur at the next scan? Mm-hmm. And then it's just, again, going back to your why, the values, and ultimately, paradoxically, if you do live with that over your head, it it could be if you reframe it into a way that, actually, this is, this is giving me an understanding of how to live. Because mm. I, I, I've walked that line of mortality, so I have the right to be like, you know what, I am mentally strong. Yeah. But also it's okay to cry. It's okay to be vulnerable. Yeah. And to, like you said, to acknowledge your emotion. Acknowledge the emotions. You know, Susan David says emotions are just, they're data points. Mm -hmm. They're not truths or, you know, they're, they're just data points and they show us what's happening in the environment around us. Yeah. But for me, when I have, when I have those thoughts, I quickly go to my journal. I look at what my values are, what my why is, what my philosophy is. And then I'm like, okay, I'm, am I, am I living that life? Yeah. Am I going out and living everything so that I know if it did come back, I could lie there and be at peace with my own mortality. And that's, you know, I don't say that lightly that that's a, but, but it's also a reality. Mm. And that's, that's a very tough piece of work to do and it's not for everybody yeah and if someone had told me and diagnosed one to do that work i'd be like hell no <laughs> but after six yeah. times now i'm like okay i can i can do this work a little bit i think it's beneficial yeah and it, and it does help me but i i would always encourage people to you know seek seek a professional and yeah and, absolutely and what work you know what works for me what works for you is totally different and yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not for everybody. Yeah. Will you talk to us a bit about flow states? Because I'm not sure everyone listening will know what flow states is. Yeah, I guess, I guess to be put it simple, it's it's being in the zone as athletes would talk about. If you think of a surfer or you think of a you know an extreme skier in backcountry skiing, they're they're so focused on in the moment 
that n- nothing else matters. It's when you're completely absorbed in a task at hand that time just disappears, you know, 20 minutes go, an hour goes, and you you come up from the work. You know, writers can get it, musicians get it, artists get it. You know, if you sat down to work at your desk and you've looked at the clock and it was 10 o'clock in the morning, the next thing it's five at night, mm-hmm. very likely you're in, you're in a flow state at some point. It's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's the sort of, I guess, the, he's credited with the, I guess, the terminology of flow states. It goes further back than him, but he... He's the most famous name, I think, that's used in the world of positive psychology to describe it. But he talks about, you know, having clear goals. There's a challenge skill balance. If the challenge is just enough to stretch you out your comfort zone, then you'll be focused because focus precedes flow. You can't get into flow if you're not focused. So if you're task switching, you won't get into a flow state. So you've got to be completely 100% immersed in it completely fully focused in it and it's got to stretch you just out of that comfort zone not to the point where it causes anxiety mm. but if something's so easy that it's kind of born it's unlike you're not going to get into flow brushing your teeth yeah so it's <laughs> it's about getting out there and, and moving the body and, and for many people that's i guess that's why sport is an access and gateway to flow mm. but as is sitting playing the piano if you if you watch some of the, the greatest pianists play that they're, they're in complete flow state so if you've never seen it before yeah w- watch some of the red bull guys or or watch some of the greatest uh musicians and performers you, you can see them in a flow state yeah. where they're completely immersed in that and your brain is actually part of the prefrontal cortex kind of goes offline a little bit you're self-critic so that inner voice hit really gets dialed down at that point so actually you you don't have that inner voice of like well i might get diagnosed again what if i get diagnosed again that that voice gets turned down yeah so is it a form of form of meditation i would say it is i would Mm. say it is and i think a lot of the people who study it and are the sort of forefront of that research would argue as well that it is a form of meditation And I think, you know, a lot of people can't, like, I can't sit still and meditate. Mm. Uh, I've got way too much energy to do that. Yeah. But I use sport as a form of meditation. Mm. And and that's, that's important because if you say to meditation is so, such a beneficial thing to do, but some people just can't sit still with their own thoughts. It's it's too much. Yeah. Oh, I'm terrible at it. (laughs) Yeah. But you can be mindfully walking, you know, if if you're walking on the street, put your phone in your pocket. Yeah. Be mindful of every step. Listen to the birds. Notice people. See people. Say good morning. That's mm. a form of meditation as yeah. well. And it's just again being in the present moment. Yeah. So pre-diagnosis, do you think you were achieving flow states in sports or not? Yeah, I, I definitely was. I didn't know what they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I I'd grown up as a skier. Yeah. And I'd always skied things that were out of my ability almost. So when I was off piste in back country. Of course, the only thing that I was focusing on was every turn. Yeah. So I was in a flow state. When I was fighting in karate, if my head was somewhere else, I'd have mm. got knocked out. So yeah. for sure, I was in flow states. Rowing, I was definitely in a flow yeah. state when you're in the boat and everything's moving. Mm. I think every sport I've been in, and I think they, they, it, they just train you to get into flow yeah. states. And okay, on long, long sessions where you're out for three hours, you can't be in a flow state for three hours. You can drift in and out of it but uh it's on you know usually the flow states maximum 90 minutes yeah but uh, but so interesting you were in them so sorry i just think i'm so interesting you were in the flow states but you didn't know what they were and now you understand what that is i find that quite an interesting concept 
yeah, I think, and that all spanned from Victor Frankl's book mm. because it, it spiked the curiosity of learning about the mind, learning about the physiology, the psychology, just basically, I guess, everything that's behind this human experience. And I felt that the more I could understand that, the better it would be for me dealing with with paralysis. And, you know, yeah. the, the tumor has been a pretty hard thing to deal with, but the tumor was there. I, I couldn't have done anything to prevent the tumor. Mm-hmm. It was there. But there's a lot of stuff that could be done to have prevented me being paralyzed. Yeah. I 100% believe that I shouldn't be paralyzed. Really? That was a that was a that was a series of mistakes. Medical mistakes. Medical yes. medical mistakes that led to me being paralyzed. Um and that I feel many ways in 2016 I died on that bed mm. when I woke up because I've never walked again. I've never skied again. Yeah. My life is in constant disarray with the paralysis i barely sometimes leave my house because of the paralysis because the anxiety is caused Mm. so yeah for me the paralysis has been much harder to deal with yeah the spinal cord injury i was interested actually I i was wondering that i was wondering if you kind of if you identified as a person who's had cancer or a spinal cord injury patient and the reason why I find that quite interesting is because as someone who's been through cancer, that community is quite important to me. And, you know, sometimes that cancer community has provided support. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered if you kind of use either of those communities for support and which one you kind of identify more more with. It's a good question. And I'm going to be very careful how I answer this because <laughs> I know that every identity is everything to everyone. Um, I've done a lot of work on this. And I think for all of my life, when someone asked who I was, I would say I'm an athlete. And Steve Peters challenged me once. He said, who, who, who are you? And I was like, well, I'm an athlete. And he's like, no, you're not. I was like, huh? And he's like, you're not. He says, you go and work out who you are. And I was like, like how to, where do I even start with that? So then I realized actually that saying that David Smith is an athlete is like saying I'm a BMW because I have a BMW car. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a BMW. I just happen to have a BMW. I'm not an athlete. I just happen to do sport. So I'm not cancer. I'm not a spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. I just happen to have a tumor and I happen to have a spinal cord injury. So there's a separation right away. So it's not who I am. Yeah. I'm more than that. So then I, that's where values came in. So I looked at my values. I looked at my character strengths and I, and I started to discover okay david someone who's who's very keen on the love of learning he's curious he's a funny guy he's a loyal guy he's persistent he, these values that he holds dear to himself that that's who i am that's my moral fiber mm. and i have just happened to have these things that are attached to who he is but I'm, they're they're not me and i think this is a great thing in, in athletes who when they come to a transition at the end of their career mm-hmm. that if all they've ever identified as being an athlete they're going to struggle because actually they're a human first and who's the human what makes up the human what's the values and your strengths and your likes and your passions and knowing what your passion is and your vision all of these things all that work helps you through transitions and as you'll know breast cancer is a transition mm. it, it, going through years of being a physio at the is there's transitions between jobs between athletes mm-hmm. it's always a, everything's a transition and how you manage those transitions if you're holding on so tightly 
to the identity that you are a physio that if that goes then you're you lose everything and and when when i was holding on so tightly and i was paralyzed and i have this body now that doesn't look like an athlete mm. that caused a lot of mental health issues to the point where i didn't even want to live yeah. so i was like okay i need to find out who i am yeah in the respect of the communities i've kind of stayed away from them if i'm being honest because it didn't really work for me right. I, I found people in spinal cord injuries who were smashing it mm-hmm. so i wanted to find people like car and dark like J- J- jamie seymour you know people who had had a spinal injury but had gone on to climb to the ski to the north pole yeah. climb everest you know mm-hmm. people who were like the outliers yeah I, I found when i was in stoke mandeville that i was struggling because I, I didn't want to be a spinal cord injury person. Yeah. It sucks. I hate it. To the, it really, I cry most weeks because of it. It mm. absolutely breaks me. Yeah. But I'm like, I can't hold on for a cure because I don't know if there ever will be a cure. Mm-hmm. All I can do is show up every day and do the best I can. So I look, well, I was going to rehab for a long time, but I was with a lot of people who had given up. And I struggled because I, I was like, wow, they're less injured than me and they're giving up. Yeah. I was like, yeah, okay, I, I, I need to remove myself from this environment and go to environment back into high-performance sport. Mm-hmm. So I surrounded myself with all the people who, who weren't sick and yeah. they weren't talking about it. They were just like talking about normal things and, and mm-hmm. not asking how I was and and having, I guess, that, that, those, that moment. So for me, that was important. Now... When I was in radiotherapy, mm-hmm. I did go to the to the the living room at the McMillan Center, and I sat with people and we spoke and and I, and I needed that at that point because yeah. we shared that strength. That was very important. Yeah. And even now, I when I meet someone who's been touched by this, there's there's a connection, mm-hmm. and and I like that, yeah. and it and it. And it's nice. And there's this sort of like level of compassion and empathy that you don't get from people who have not been through this. So I understand why people want to go back to those groups because there's this, there's like a love. Mm. And I I met a gentleman last week in Mallorca. His wife had passed away of a brain tumor and he asked if he could hug me. (laughs) I was like, okay. And he (laughs) hugged me. And when he hugged me, I felt like he was hugging his wife. Wow. And it was pretty cathartic for both of us. It, there was, it was very, very strange feeling. Um, but I, wow. that's, yeah, that, I don't even know how to put that into words. Yeah. Um, I, I think that I feel myself closer to the cancer community, not the spinal cord injury community. I, I struggle because it's mm. just, I've not accepted it. It's too overwhelming for me. It, I, I can't face it. But the, the going into the radiotherapy in that community, I, Mm. that i i feel really dearly um and and it's just it's i think it's a reminder of how how lucky we are to be alive but also how close we are for things being taken away from us and we don't know what we've got until we lose it absolutely Mm. um you you know you've said how hard this has been for you and you know how you could have given up so i want to know where do you get your resilience from? Uh, 
Good question. There, I guess there is a there is a huge debate on whether you're born resilient or yeah. is it a nurture nature yeah, thing. That's what I, that's I what think, I'm interested. Where, what yeah, do you think? Yeah, to on be that? honest with you, I think it was a lot. And I just before coming on here, I was listening to Angela Duckworth talk actually, and she spoke about kids, and she said if kids are not, if everything is done for them, they will never learn to do things for themselves. Yeah. So by giving them over love, you're almost being cruel. So if you're cooking all their meals for them, doing everything for them, they will never learn how to do it themselves. Yeah. So it's actually good to encourage them to do the washing, to do cooking. It's not child slavery. <laughs> you're actually giving them life skills. Mm. And I think back to how I was when I was growing up. If I fell out a tree and hurt myself, my parents were like, you need to get off the ground and dust yourself down. Yeah. They didn't rush to me and be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, are you okay? Mm -hmm. I am covered in scars from learning how to live. In karate, yeah. I, I've got multiple broken noses from karate. But I remember getting punched in, in a training session in a dojo in Aberdeen and broke my nose and I was like unconscious for a split second. Mm -hmm. But when I came around, the instructor was like, get up, go again. Yeah. Two bits of tissue. No, no, this is really not for everyone, but two bits of tissue and you go again. You <laughs> yeah. face your fear. You know, courage is mm. fear walking. Yeah. And I look back at all of those lessons that I learned in sport, learning how to lose. Mm. You know, when you get beat, what what does that feel like? What emotions does it cause? How do you reset and go again? Mm. And I guess I grew up in a generation where it was like, get on with it yeah don't 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 come to me crying if the school bully punches you mm. yeah do, do something about it yeah. and i think all of that lessons mm. have served me very well now yeah because i think they that was my resilience training Absolutely. and especially going and spending three weeks in japan and being in the dojos in japan at 17 year old and and genuinely getting hit mm. hard and getting back up and going again because yeah. you, you, you just couldn't stop you couldn't walk out the dojo and say hey i've had enough i'm out of here yeah. so, just, yeah. just didn't do that so you and had this that's... resilience within you probably yeah. from your sporting history which is yeah. which has most likely really helped you on your journey now yeah and i always believe that i think sport gave me the mindset and the physiology to deal with cancer and paralysis but those two latter things really taught me how to live. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it took you beyond basically. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I guess that's like the spiritual element coming into it and going into the meaning of life and the meaning of my life and your life and others' lives. And I think the lessons I learned from sitting in a radiotherapy room, watching all these different people from babies to people in their nineties mm. and then coming up onto the street where everyone was angry and everyone looked sad. Yeah. And then actually collectively in the radiotherapy room, people were kind of, I'm not going to say they were happy. They were, they were kind of happy. There was, there was people smiling and mm. joking and the staff were, the staff were amazing. You know, they, they make it. And, and then you come up onto the street and it's just, it's like two different yeah. worlds. And I'm like, yeah. We we need to the the world in the basement, <laughs> the world above need to learn mm. about what's going on in the basement. Yeah. Well, it helps you put stuff into perspective, I think. And it's you know it's about not sweating the small stuff anymore. I think that's yeah. when you see when you face something big, 
when you then face something little, you, you know, you're like, meh. <laughs> yeah. It's not really a big deal, you know, and it, yeah. it's the same, you know, if, you know, if I leave a coffee cup or spill a little bit of chocolate on the sofa, it causes a huge domestic argument. I'm like, look, it's no one's died. Yeah. 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 Like, no one's died, you know, and like we, you know, and I think that people are stretched right to the limit. That's, stimulus space response we have no space we're mm. reactive beings and then that's usually reflected on our loved ones and if we could just pause take a breath sometimes and respond with the person you really want to be communication between people and then like you say don't the small stuff then becomes so i'm pretty sure victor Frankl wasn't sweating the small stuff yeah i think you're probably yeah. right <laughs> He dealt with so much and pretty confident that guy yeah. wasn't going to get upset if someone cut him up in a car. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it, it's, it goes, you know, because stress is accumulative. It's like a dripping tap. And if you're getting stressed because someone's cut you up in a car and you're yeah. angry and you're shouting, that's the, the, the stuff, the stuff that's going on inside your body at a yeah. cellular level. Yeah. That's not a good place to be. And okay. again, you don't know the person that's cut you up. They might be late for a mm -hmm. chemotherapy session yeah they might have just been diagnosed with a brain tumor mm -hmm. you do not know what they're going through yeah and you're reactive i always try to say people just pause for a minute yeah every human being is going through something yeah just yeah. just cut come every day if i step out the door i always say david compassion leave mm -hmm. the house with compassion yeah whoever you encounter today is facing something yeah so you really do live by kind of these values that you that you want to achieve. I try. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> so, yeah. Sometimes I get hijacked. I get hijacked by my by my amygdala limbic brain, and mm. and and I don't. You know, I think it, I think you'd have to be a Zen monk living in a temple in Tibet to be fully, yeah, fully aligned. I think it's very very hard. You know, I, I think it's yeah, it's very challenging Absolutely. to be completely zen like i think what i try to do is i try to create an environment around me that best facilitates mm. david being the person that he want wants to be and and a big part of that was actually leaving high performance sport right you know because i couldn't be that person in high performance sport i struggled you know, that environment is doesn't often lend itself to the human person it's more about targets and spreadsheets and hitting medals and mm. i just feel that it's actually that, that you know, it's, it's, we need to probably do a little bit better with looking after the human there as well yeah so in terms of specific strategies which you use we've touched on quite a lot we've touched on flow states um you know philosophy um values journaling is there anything else that you know you, you use that we might not have mentioned yet Having fun. Yeah. <laughs> Having fun and laughing. Laughing. I think, you know, we we can be so serious at times. And I think, you know, if mm. if you look at when times are really hard and, you know, it might even be in the lead up to an Olympic final or something that's really intense and someone just says something funny and it breaks the ice. Yeah. And, you know, you see it in, in the hospital, you know, if you're sitting in the waiting room and there's silence and in the water fountain or someone goes to do something and they trip or something and everyone kind of like sniggers under their breath yeah, and it yeah. just breaks it breaks that and i know when we were in hospital in the spinal cord hospital especially 
I was so fortunate to have a rugby player on one side of me and an army guy on the one other side of me. And we had such a dark humor. And I remember Victor Franco talking about this as yes. well. Yeah. That outside that hospital, I think people would have been like, you can't do that. But in that environment, it, the laugh inside of it got us through and i and i think you know to to have jokes and goof around i think is yeah. is is great and if and i often say you know if you go into a room full of children they're all laughing and playing and you know oh what's your name what do you do what what giraffe do you like giraffes and then you go into a room full of adults and they're deadly serious and no one will speak and and i'm like we've lost we we got to kind of keep a little bit of that mm. that childlike fun and humor and you know where there's obviously a part in our life where we we kind of lose that innocence and uh, you know i love i i think if if something that we could inject a little bit more into it because we're we're one click away from negativity oh my god you turn on the news and it's just doom and gloom everywhere and i understand we're, we're everyone's going through a hard time but amongst that it's important still mm-hmm. to laugh and, and have fun and yeah. And you know, there's no better person to laugh at than uh, yourself, and yeah. just just lighten the mood. And I think I think humor is is really important. I think it's a key a key ingredient in any world that we're working in, even in high performance environment. I still think it's important to, if yeah. when things go wrong, sometimes to laugh and be like, well, okay, no one died here, but it, yeah, yeah. you would that was a pretty stupid thing to do. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it's great to laugh, isn't it? And I, I think yeah. that's a really nice place to kind of tie things off if we end on, you know, that it's it's so important to have fun. Um, but I do like to end with one final question. Um, yeah. If you could go you know, back in time to when things were really at their toughest, what do mm-hmm. you wish you could have told yourself? I'm working on my stimulus space response. I don't, I, it's a very good question. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't do anything different. I think the person who showed up every time is is got me to where I need to be. If I could go back at all at any point, it would be just before I was paralyzed. And I would have gone to a different hospital. Really? Wow. I would have got second opinions, third opinions, and that stimulus space response, I paid the ultimate price mm-hmm. for not having that. And that's why that's such a big, that's why when you first asked the question, what did you take from that book? It was that. Yeah. Because I didn't have that space. I had the stimulus and then I was just like, okay, let's have the surgery. Yeah. And I think in that instance, if I could go back to any point of my life, mm. it would be that point in that moment and be like, I'm going away from here. I'm going to take time. Because mm. I hid in sport. I went straight to sport. That was always the coping mechanism. Straight out of those surgeries, straight out of the consultation room, straight onto my bike. Mm. But don't want, I, I can't deal with this. I had no support. I had no oncology, no psychology at that point. I was just... Like I need, I'll just hide in sport, but you can't hide because as you know, you can't hide. You, you have to deal with this. And and I didn't have people around me that could, could help me. It was, you know, people didn't know. And I was very like, oh, I'll just push on. Mm. If, if I could go back to any point in my life, I'd step away from that. And I'd be like, I need help. And I need help 
from somebody who critically thinks, who's smart enough to be like, okay, we're going to go and speak to all of these different doctors. We're going to get all of these opinions and then we're going to make a decision yeah. because this is third time it's reoccurred and clearly something is not working. This approach that's being used is not working. And if it's the same approach again, it's going to reoccur again, which it did. Yeah. And if I had done that, yeah, I wouldn't be paralyzed today. Mm, yeah yeah and but you can only say that when you look back can't you you know we can all be clever and in yeah. retrospect yeah. yeah and i've had to work on that 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 mm. I've, had a, I've had a lot of psychology uh around that and not being hard on myself because mm. i blamed myself yeah and then my psychologist as well it's not your fault you yeah. weren't to know exactly I mean, it's not your fault mm. and we can only go with the information that's given to us and the people we trust Mm. and i think what i would always encourage people if they're facing the battle the the, the battle the journey or whatever it may be that the, the two of us have been on is that that it's hugely emotional mm. and to know that when you're emotional you don't make rational decisions yeah get somebody who's a little bit less emotional that can make your logical decisions for you mm -hmm. and help you lean on people and ultimately get multiple opinions and don't take your first answer you have to push you know you have to push and you have to mm -hmm. push these people and you know i know they're under a lot of strain and a lot of pressure but it's your life yeah and if you don't shout for your life no, nobody will yeah thank you david thank you so much for your honesty today <laughs> i think your story is mm -hmm. remarkable I really do. I think, you know, when I see you on Instagram cycling up these mountains, <laughs> you know, knowing as a physio that, you know, you don't have the use of one side of your body. I, I'm quite amazed by it. And when we go offline, I'm going to ask how you do that. <laughs> um, but, you know, thank you so much. If people want to know more about you, where can they find you? Are you on social media? Um, or? I, I don't I, I'm. I don't tend to use social media. I am on I'm on Instagram, just David Smith MBE. I write a weekly column for the Herald newspaper in Scotland, so I'm more active there. And uh, yeah, like they, they can find me on in, and LinkedIn. Actually, I, I use Instagram and LinkedIn uh, as the two. Just David Smith MBE, and I have a website with some videos and stuff. So great, thanks. I really think this talk will inspire people that are going through similar things. So thank you so much for your time. No, thank you, Emma. Thank you. That was a brilliant episode of David today. If you enjoyed listening, please do subscribe, rate and review because it really, really makes a difference to us. We're so excited that the first series of When Life Gives You Lemons is sponsored by Coe's Linen. Coe's supply some of the UK's finest hotels with luxury linens, including bedding, towels and bathrobes. So if you want to feel like you're on holiday or a spa break every day, then I can highly recommend their products. I really love my personalised bathrobe. You know that feeling when you've had a long day at work or a really hard workout? That's when all I want is to have a hot bath, dry myself in my fluffy cosed towel and then relax on the sofa. And that is when you'll find me in my Coz bathrobe. Honestly, the most cosy item I've ever owned. All products can be personalised with custom monograms designed by leading interior designer Sophie Patterson. You can find them exclusively online at www.coeslinen.com. Listeners to When Life Gives You Lemons can save 10% with the discount code POD10. 
You can find a link in the show notes. 